All right, well, if you've been with us for the last several weeks, we have been preaching through the book of Amos. Amos is, was, a, was a prophetic book, and this morning uh, we are transitioning into a new book. So we finished Amos last week. And so if, if it was, if this is this morning is like the week was for me, it's going to feel a little jarring, right, having left Amos behind. Um, so Amos ends after, you know, seven and a half chapters of just kind of brutalness with these five verses of hope at the end. And so it, it almost is like this jarring thing at the end of Amos. And now this morning we're going to move into a New Testament book. And so what we tend to do about 98, 99% of the time here at Redeemer is that we just take a book and we work through it chapter by chapter over the course of weeks or months or however long it takes us. We do that for a few reasons. One, um, it forces us to preach passages that we wouldn't typically preach, right? Because you come to it and you're like, hey, why'd you skip it? So we don't skip it. Um, And and what that does is it reminds us, um, church, that we're a family, Um, And if we're not careful, we can look at Sunday mornings as this kind of consumer-driven thing where the sermon has to be um, this this spot-on takeaway application each and every week. Um, And and so doing that, then we we would be, the tendency would be to bounce around passages from here and there and everywhere. What preaching through a book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter does is it forces us, one, to preach things we wouldn't typically preach. It helps us to see the the overall context and the flow of the author's intent. Um, It allows us to move between different genres of scripture. I mean, so last week we were, had spent two months in a prophetic book. Um, This morning we're going to move into a letter in the New Testament. We're going to spend the next few weeks walking through this new book. Um, And so it allows us to to be reminded that all of God's word is good for life and godliness, that it's beneficial, that it's necessary. Um, It also reminds us that, that ultimately that we come this morning not to be entertained, that we come as a family looking to lock arms together, to live out the four dozen one another passages of Scripture together, to be on mission together. And so we're coming together around the Word, trusting the Spirit to give um, enlightenment, to give understanding for the Spirit to transform and to change us. And so as the church, then we go out on mission into the world. And so it changes even the perspective sometimes of, of why we come from, let's see if the preacher's got a word for me this morning, to the Word of God is alive, and it speaks and it moves, whether we are in Amos or Genesis or 1 Corinthians or 3 John or wherever, that, that the Word is alive and that the Spirit is moving and speaking. And so it's, it's why we, we preach this way. So this morning... We are going to start one of Paul's letters, and it's going to be First Timothy. So First Timothy um, is, if you get to First and Second Corinthians, um, you'll see Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and then you get into kind of five short letters. If you get to Hebrews, go back to your left, and you'll find First Timothy nestled in there. Um, we're going to just start this morning by reading the first three verses to begin with, and then... We're going to do a little bit of background information. So beginning in verse 1 of 1 Timothy, 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of our God and our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So we're going to stop there momentarily. Um, so whenever we start a new book, the, the first sermon has a, a little bit more of a, of a classroom or lecture feel than a sermon because um, we're laying foundation, right? We're making sure that we have um, an understanding of the contextual situation that was going on because if we don't understand what it meant, we cannot begin to understand what it means for us. And so first and foremost, um, we are going from, we're having a genre change. This is not narrative, it's not historical, it's not prophetic, it's not poetry, it's a letter. Um, And it's a letter written specifically to one individual, but this letter is unique in that it's an individual and it's a public letter. And so if you look at the very last verse in 1 Timothy, you'll see this, Um, beginning in verse 20 of chapter 6. Here's how Paul ends it. O Timothy... Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid their reverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. So we we see he's writing it to Timothy. But in verse 21, For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with y'all. Okay? That you there is plural. And so it's not grace be to you, Timothy. It's grace be to y'all, the church. And so what this is, is this is a letter that Paul has penned. He's written to Timothy, but it's meant to be read for the church. And so Timothy is almost like the representative receiving it, but it was never meant just for his eyes only. It was meant for the whole church. And so it's a little bit unique in that we don't see a lot of letters written like this, right? I don't, I don't write a letter to Carmen that's then for y'all, right? Like typically it's going to be, it's either for, for y'all or it's for her, And Paul is writing this letter that is both an individual, and there's going to be specific personal charges to Timothy, but it's also a public letter for the church um, that we're going to see here in a minute. It's it's obvious in verse 1, Paul has written it. It's from him. He lets us know. He's like, look, I'm writing it. I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. If you're not familiar with Paul's story, Paul is an apostle. He was not one of the original 12 disciples. Um, He was actually a persecutor of the early church. And then Jesus quite literally knocks him to the ground, right, and saves him. And says, no longer are you going to fight against me. You're going to be sent by me. You're going to be commissioned by me. And so Paul becomes potentially the greatest missionary the world has, has ever known as Jesus absolutely rescues and saves him. And so Paul lets the church know. He says, look, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God. He's like, no church, no authority, no disciple, no one has said, okay, Paul, you go and do this. He says, I'm doing this because it's been given to me by God to do this. That is the command that I've been given is, is from him. I've been sent by Jesus. And so he's, he's calling on that authority. Um, he then tells us who it's to in verse 2, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, we, we see Timothy in Acts 16, and in Acts 16, Timothy is most likely a, a teenager. So Paul comes to Derby. this is verse 1 of Acts 16, and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, 
the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And so at that point, Timothy joins one of the missionary journeys. And so Paul and Timothy have a unique relationship. It's more like father-son. Timothy would have been a, a young man, probably late teens. Paul is an older man, taking him in as a disciple, bringing him along on the missionary journeys. And so Timothy is mentioned in six of Paul's opening letters. Six of the 13 letters he writes, he mentions Timothy. We see that they have a close relationship, that they are, it's a trusted relationship. Listen to how he describes him even um, in just one. This is in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 20, sorry, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for all of your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served me with the gospel, served me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come. So we see Paul thinks highly of Timothy, that they've worked together for years, that there's this unique bond and relationship. There's, there's trust and there's tenderness. Most likely at this point, as Timothy is receiving this letter, he's now in his mid-30s, somewhere, somewhere around there. So it's, it's been 12, 15, 16 years. Um, Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers, said that from 30 to 40 was the first stage of manhood. And so Timothy would still be considered a young man, and we'll see that come up as he's dealing with older men in the church later in 1 Timothy. Um, That he would have been still a, a young man. So where? Where is Timothy currently? He's in Ephesus. Right? Verse 3, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia to remain at Ephesus. And so Ephesus is, was a seaport town. It's in modern-day Turkey. Um, it was a very prosperous city for, for, for generations because it was a port. Um, it had the, the temple to Artemis or Diana, depending on right, if you're looking at Greek or Roman gods. Um, and so this made it a very religiously complex city. There were lots of cults, lots of other religions. Because it was a port city, people are traveling in, and then they have a place to worship, this grand temple to Artemis. Um, The city was prosperous. It was wealthy. It had gone from Persian hands to Greek hands to Roman hands, and it was a city where it just kind of outlasted whoever was kind of in in charge, and it kind of did its own thing. And so Ephesus is a a powerful city. It's a renowned city. Its population was very likely over 100,000, even at this point. Um, So it's it's large, and it's complex. Um, If we look at Acts 19, if we look at a little bit of Paul's time that he spent in Ephesus, let's see here. Acts 19, um, we see that the gospel, it just, it has an effect on culture when you're in a place. And so we know that, that, that Diana Artemis was the primary object of worship. And so as Paul is now ministering in Ephesus, 
Verse 23 of chapter 19. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, which was the church. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. So this guy was a successful idol maker, um, specifically wanting people to worship Artemis. And those he gathered together with the workmen and several trades. And he said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, whom all of Asia and the world worship. And so then a riot occurs. Demetrius causes a riot looking to remove Paul from Ephesus because the gospel was making inroads. And people were believing and people were were not worshiping. And listen, if it was one person quit buying an idol, it doesn't make a stir. It's that the droves were coming to faith, that, that, that their bottom dollar was beginning to be affected, that Demetrius is willing to create a riot in Ephesus. So this is the city, and we're several years removed from this, at least five years. So when was when was this letter to Timothy written? Most likely, it was written between 62 and 64 AD, all right? So, Paul, at the end of Acts, is in Rome, and he's in prison, and that's where Acts ends, is with him in chains in Acts 28. Most likely, and, and this is where um, there's, there's a period of Paul's life post-Acts that we, we don't have from biblical tradition, but we have from, like, church tradition, was that Paul was released and he had a period of two, three, four years post-Rome where he ministered again. This is where our letter to Titus, to First and Second Timothy come. He was then re-arrested, re-imprisoned, and eventually executed by Nero from church tradition. Nero died in 68. We know that Paul was initially in Rome in 5960 in prison. So if he was released around 61, he had to be dead by 68. That kind of begins to narrow our time frame that this is in the early to mid-60s that this letter is being written um, by Paul to Timothy, his beloved son in the faith. So why is it being written? Paul is writing to Timothy because false teachers have emerged, right? That false teachers are affecting the church in Ephesus. If again, we're going to go back to Acts because we have a lot of insight into Ephesus from Acts. Chapter 20 now. As Paul was leaving Ephesus, as he has spent time in Ephesus, and now is leaving the elders that he has put in charge, he writes this in chapter 20, verse 27. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God, So pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, listen, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I have not ceased night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. 
So no, Paul's kind of his MO was that he would go to a place, he would land there, he would plant a church, he would look to raise up leadership, and then he would move on to another place, sending letters back, visiting when he can, looking to continue to shepherd and to pastor these churches um, as he is moving forward. And so we have Paul basically looking at the elders of the church in Ephesus after the riot and after three years of ministering there, and he says, look, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to leave, and from within the church, there are going to be those who are going to look to twist and to distort the gospel, who are going to look to, to lead people astray. Wolves are going to come up, and you're not going to recognize them as wolves because they're going to come from within. And so you need to be on guard, and you need to be ready, and you need to be steadfast, and you need to lean into the gospel. Right? That's Acts 20. Now, years later, Paul is writing a letter to the church in Ephesus where Timothy currently is, and what he has said would happen has happened. False teachers have emerged. They've, they've risen up from within the church, from without of the church, and they are wreaking havoc. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus in his own letter, Ephesians, that he says, I want you to grow up and be rooted in the gospel. I don't want you to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, every cunning word of deceit, saying, you know, if, if these people say it, you're like, that sounds great. I think that makes sense. And then another guy speaks, and you're like, I think that makes sense. I want to believe that. And well, this guy's, he's like, you're being tossed to and fro. And so what we've seen is that as the church is being rooted and established, that issues with false teachings have emerged, and that Paul warned them, he's written them, and now he's writing to Timothy saying, this same issue is at hand, we need to deal with it. He's looking to reassert the gospel. And he's looking to remind them that there are implications for gospel living. That the church is meant to be the household of God, ordered by God himself, and then we live out on mission. And so he says, if we get this wrong, if we're, if we're disrupted by false teaching, then the mission of God begins to be thwarted in Ephesus because the church isn't doing what it's meant to do because they haven't trusted and followed God's teaching and doctrine correctly. And so if you turn over in 1 Timothy to chapter 3, listen to what what Paul writes to Timothy in verse 14. He goes, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. So here's what he's saying. He's like, Timothy, I'm writing to you and I want to come and I want to support you, but here's what needs to happen. The church is the buttress of truth. It is a lighthouse in Ephesus. And the household of God is ordered by God, and it matters. And so what we're seeing is a transition from kind of the apostles' authority, that what they say goes, to the apostles are, are, are going to be dying off within a generation. And they are setting the churches up with, with proper biblical leadership, with proper biblical organization and understanding of the role of the church both within and the effect that it should have on the world. And so that's what, what Paul is attempting to do to Timothy, who's his representative there. Why for us? Why did we go to 1 Timothy from Amos? Right? You're thinking, not sure how those doors connect. In Amos, we saw this. We saw Israel, a nation, having had this unified, unique experience where God rescued them. In Exodus, right? He, he makes them from slaves 
and makes them his people. And then he reveals himself and he gives them the law and he walks with them and he sustains them and he provides them. He gives them himself and calls them to rightly image him. And Amos, the whole thrust of the book is you haven't done it. You haven't held to the covenant. You haven't been loving. You haven't been just. You haven't been righteous. You have not rightly reflected the image or the character of God as a people. And therefore, judgment is coming. They didn't love. Church, we, as not a nation, but as a people, as a church, have a shared experience as well. It's the cross. We're in it through Jesus' perfect life, his obedient death, and his subsequent resurrection. We have peace with God. We have hope. We have salvation. He has saved us. And then you individually have had your unique individual salvation that has occurred for many of you. And so as a people, we're looking around, and he has not called us together as a nation. He's called us together as the church, as a treasured people of God. And he says this, love and show justice and show righteousness and rightly reflect me and go to the ends of the earth sharing who I am until the day I return. Israel failed in their mission to rightly reflect God's image. And so judgment came. But church, we've now been called to continue to rightly reflect God's image, to be just and righteous, to be loving, to be good neighbors. And we know how God feels about it. So the call upon us is significant. And so we want to go from Amos where we saw them not heed God's warning to now be reminded that we are called in the church and via the church to be hope and joy and light to the world because of Jesus. And so are we going to walk in Israel's footsteps or are we going to walk in the faithful footsteps of Jesus? Listen now as we pick up in verse 3. As I urged you, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So here's what's happening. As the false teachers are emerging, Paul doesn't name them. He doesn't, he doesn't say, here's the, the, the exact false teaching that was occurring. He gives some ideas. We know it, it's Jewish in nature because they, they fancy themselves teachers of the law. They're talking about Jewish genealogies and myths and stories. They're going back and going, hey, maybe if we nuance this story and this legend about this person, then it would have implications for us. And they're talking about these things, and, and Paul's saying, you've left the, you've left the gospel. But why does Paul not just clearly say, here's what the false teaching is, Timothy, and here's how you deal with it? Church, here's why. There will always be false teaching. And it will come in different forms and different fashions. And so if Paul specifically says, this is the only way you can deal with it, false teaching continues to to change, right? To emerge, to, to shift, so that it will compel a new generation's heart and a new culture's heart that we would not be probably led astray by fanciful Jewish legends and myths. 
It's not concerning to us, but false teaching still can creep into the church in 2019 in Pampa. And so Paul is saying, look, false teaching, it's always going to be there, and we're always going to have to deal with it. We're always going to have to go back to the the buttress of truth, which is the gospel that Jesus has rescued us and that God has done it on our behalf for his glory. And so some of the false teaching that we're going to deal with, that they're going to deal with, is, is, is heresy, right? It is false, right? It, it deals with looking to maybe to dismantle the Trinity. of saying, well, Jesus wasn't really God. Or maybe it has to do with, um, right, it, it has to do with, is, is, is the Word of God valid? Is it the Word of God, period? Right? There's always going to be false teaching, and we have to be able to discern and identify what it is in our culture. Maybe it's how we're saved. Is it by works or is it by grace? Right? Maybe we try to, to wed those things together and we begin to see that that's false teaching. And so the way we describe this here is we, there are some things that are closed-handed that we're not going to argue with you about. Jesus is the only way to salvation. The Word of God is true. And it's, it pertains everything we need for life and godliness. Right? Those are closed-handed. We're not going to debate whether Jesus is sufficient. But these myths and these genealogies can also, here's where it may be more likely to affect us right now, is it can become unnecessary conversation. It's not necessarily false information. It's unnecessary Right? And so how many of you have been in churches where, where these endless conversations emerge, where people are just looking to see who can be more right and show more wits? Right? And so we want to talk about things like Bible translations. Right? And so we're not talking about the veracity of Scripture, whether it's true or not. We're going, well, my, my translation's better than your translation. Right? And, and is there some merit to it? Yes. But if that conversation never can come to an end, right? So here's the thing. That's open-handed here. If you want to talk to me about translations, glad to do it. But I'm not going to fight with you about it. And I'm not going to, we're not going to tell you you have to, to carry one where you're not welcome, right? It's an open-handed thing. Another one would be end times, right? Here's what's closed-handed about end times. Jesus is coming back for his people, right? He's going to return for us. Now, you want to get into the, the ifs, ands, buts, whens, hows, timelines, dates, and all those things. It's, it's, it's fascinating, Right? But it can lead it into speculation and endless conversations, right? He's saying it can, it can take us to a place where we wander away into vain discussion, which is distracting us from the mission of God, which is to share the gospel and to see people transformed and rescued and saved. And so it's not that it doesn't have merit, but it's not primary. The primary thing is, is that Jesus is returning for his people, that we know that judgment is coming, which therefore should drive urgency to see folks saved, not us sitting in ivory towers talking about theological minutia. And so Paul is saying, look, this can come from false teachings, but it can also come from within the church of just being interested with things that are not primary and making that our sole focus. He says, look, we can then check the fruit of the teachers to see what this is doing, right? The question is, is what comes from the way that you, the things you talk about and the things that you teach, right? So in verse four, they devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship, right? That comes from God that is by faith. 
So the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Others, certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions. Right? So he says, look, one circles in on itself. That's all you get. Just more of it. And the other one leads you into stewardship of faith and love and grace. And you see fruit that is eternal and transformation because people are saved and rejoicing in it. So church, right, this affects us because we gather in, in homes all through the week, in, in gospel communities, looking to discuss the sermon and the passage and, and what the Spirit is doing and how He's leading us. And if we see that discussion is merely the sake for like intellectual fodder so that we can see who is clever or who knows more or who is right, if that is the sole purpose then we have wandered into vainless, sorry, vain, endless speculation. Because the point isn't to be clever. The point is to be transformed. The point is that there is hope and that we are a light in a dark place because of Jesus and His Spirit within us. It's to be equipped for mission. So what are we known for? What are you known for as an individual? What are you, what's your GC known for? What's your, our church known for? Is it you have to be right? Endless and vain discussions? Or is it the love of Jesus, of grace, of Christ-likeness, of fruit? Because we're looking to tra- be transformed and to equip people to go out into their worlds and their circles of influence so that they can point people to Jesus. Right, so that Jesus will rescue and save them so that he will receive more worship and more praise. Right, so that the culture will be affected, even if it means it's affected because they want to riot against us, because they see that God's power is real and that it's moving among us, and it's affecting their bottom line. Churches, we've been given a task, a mission, to make much of Jesus until the day he returns for us. And we are currently in between salvation and eternity with him, which means we're in a battlefield. It means we have a mission and we have a task and we're in a war zone. And judgment is coming for those who don't know him. So anything that hinders mission, right, is a tool of the devil to take us away from making Jesus primary whether that is false teaching or whether that is endless speculation about religious things, right? That he can take a good thing and twist it into something that is wicked because it hinders mission. The role of the church is to be a place of truth, of hope in Jesus. And it's easy then for the church to, to, to drift, right? The mission goes away and we begin to be known for certain theological positions only rather than, man, they're about Jesus, so let me give you an example of this. The church in America is known for having a lot of really public disagreements, right? Of fighting about different things that ultimately are not always salvific in nature, primary in nature. When Carmen and I moved to Yemen, um, we were the first Westerners to ever live in our neighborhood. And most of the other um, non-Yemenis in our city we're from Europe, we're from Asia, from Australia. There were a few Americans. There was a variety of denominational backgrounds. Let me tell you what, we did not have a lot of denominational talks because it was evident we were in a battlefield, right? It was evident that most of the people around us didn't, right, were opposed to us and what it is that we believed and what we trusted and what we thought about God. And so we didn't go, 
oh, you have a different way of thinking about that. Hmm. It was you love Jesus. And we need to lock arms and be on mission because we believe the gospel will change people. It will save people. It will transform people. And judgment is coming. And there's an urgency that these folks that we've come to know and to love need to know that the false teaching that they're hearing, that there is hope and there is truth. But if we're not careful when things, when we don't feel like we're in a battle zone, when we don't feel like that we're in a war zone because we've just kind of been numbed into thinking our culture is mostly Christian, then we get to bicker about things that don't matter, which is a trick of the enemy to take us off the task at hand that people are dying and going to hell, that Jesus is worthy of worship. And so what Paul is writing to Timothy is this, certain persons are looking to swerve you into a drift. And I'm telling you, come back to the truth and lock into the truth and be a buttress of the truth of the gospel of Jesus and love people and see salvation occur. Why? And this is where we're going to end. Verse 1, because God saves. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of our God, listen to what he says, God our Savior and of Jesus Christ our hope. God saves. The God who was the architect, the initiator of the plan, that Jesus was the means of our rescue. He was our sacrifice on our behalf. In verse 2, he tells him, he tells Timothy, I want grace for you. Grace is to the undeserved, which is what we get in Jesus. We are not deserving of grace, of mercy, of love, of salvation, and yet we get it even though we don't deserve it. Mercy, he says, I want for you, Timothy, which is for those who are unable to fix their own situation. You have to show mercy to someone who can't fix what's going on. We were unable to find salvation. We were unable to bridge that gap. God had to do it. And ultimately, we get peace, which is reconciliation with God. Because of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection, he satisfied the wrath of God. He puts us at peace, so we're no longer are we enemies, no longer are we objects of wrath or judgment, but we become sons and daughters of the King who received mercy and hope and grace. And then we're tasked with, now go be ministers of reconciliation to the world. Let them know there's good news. Let them know there's hope in, your, in Jesus. That we would not be tossed to and fro to every conversation, every controversy, every wind of doctrine, every, every disagreeing idea, but that we would be anchored in the truth that Jesus saves and that He is sufficient. Paul writes in Ephesians 2 that He takes dead things and He makes them alive. That's the mercy. We weren't going to fix it. He fixes it. He saves us. Church, why we're going to go to Timothy is this. Most of you have been made alive by Jesus. And then he has brought us together as a body, as a family, as a church to make much of him in Pampa and in the surrounding area and in Texas and in America and in the world for his glory. And we don't know right? We don't know how much time we have as individuals as, as we have before he returns. So we want to live with some urgency, not boiled, not, not bottled up with minutiae. saying there are folks who are, they're enslaved to sin. They're currently objects of wrath when God looks at them. And it doesn't have to be that way because Jesus saves and he is sufficient and he is enough. And so we want together 
to see what Paul gives Timothy for the church, that we would strive for godliness, hoping in Christ for our good, for the good of our world, and for the glory of God, right? So we want to lean in to 1 Timothy so to make sure that we are a healthy church who is not drifting from mission to the praise of Jesus' name. Let's pray. Father, we, we come to you because we need you. Father, we ask you to speak this morning. So, Father, as we take a few moments to sit and to be still before you, God, would you bring to our hearts, our minds, anything that maybe that we, we love to argue or to debate about that just isn't really relevant to the gospel? God, would we not be quick this morning to, to argue with you or to defend ourselves, Lord, but to let us, Lord, bring us out of any drift. God, help us to see that we, we're in a battle until you come for us, but that we've won, and that there's hope and there's peace and there's salvation, and it's offered not only to us but to the world. Would we not be found huddled up in the corner, but would we be found on the front lines asking and praying that you would save and transform, that there would be more that would know your name and more that would sing your praises? Because it's who you are. It's what you're worth. Lord, would we be known for you and for truth, not for having to be right? So, Father, we confess that we do drift. We ask that you would center us as a family, as a body, as we study First Timothy. And the Father, that we would see folks come to know you as we spend time in this. We would see folks repent. Father, that we would trust you, that we would be buttressed with truth. In Jesus' name, amen. We invite you.